This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. And in our lives as Christ followers, we, we have to become like Jesus. And you were, you were created for that. I, I love Romans 8 because it has one of my favorite verses. And, and that verse, oftentimes we, we take it out of its original context and don't see where Paul was leading with that in Romans 8, 28, where the Bible says, And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are according, called according to his purposes for them. All right, we love the, I love this verse because it talks about the goodness of God and how God uses everything, whether it be good or difficult in our lives for his purposes and really that God is going to turn even things that are very difficult into good, which means that if it's not good yet, God's not done. All right? But he's leading to the next thought, which is this. For God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son. The stuff that God is working in your life, that God is turning into good, is stuff that God wants to allow to use to make you more like Jesus. Because you were created to become like Jesus. And if we ever settle for anything that's less than that, we have settled for a version of Christianity that does not match the Bible. Because God's desire is that you become like Jesus. Last week, I started this series by talking about how God loves and, and, and just told you simply that Jesus is the template. If you want to understand love, look at Jesus. If you want to understand how to be a leader, look at Jesus. If you want to understand how to love your spouse, look at the way that Jesus loved the church. If you want to understand how to parent, look at how Jesus treated those who were far away from God. If you want to understand anything in life, Jesus is the template. Look at him. But this week, here's the, here's the big idea, because in, before, we, before we show that, here, this series is all about the love of God. But here, here's the thing about love. Love, love is oftentimes in, in our culture confused with, with affection and sentiment. Those are not the same thing. Love has an expression. Love has action. It is something, if it does not have action with it, it is not love. So if someone, that James is going to go so far as to say, if someone claims that they love God, but they don't have the actions to back it up, then they don't love God. So love is expressed in multiple different ways. We talked about last week that love looks a lot like service. The big idea for this week is that love looks a lot like sacrifice. Love looks a lot like sacrifice. And see, the thing is, is that we, we don't understand sacrifice in our culture because most of the time we don't like anything that has to do with pain. All right, most of y'all are afraid of pain. We don't even like pain. If you're like me, I don't like anything that's painful, okay? I run from it. I try to stay away from it. But I've learned that there's always a purpose in pain, that God has a plan to use pain, that pain may humble us, 
Pain may challenge us, but in the end, God has a purpose for everything that we go through that is painful. We don't like that. We don't even like to talk about suffering. But the truth is, is that love looks a lot like sacrifice. It looks a lot like sacrifice, and that's a word that's very uncomfortable in our culture. Let me define for you what I mean when I say sacrifice. Sacrifice is giving your time, talent, and treasure without obligation through freedom, motivated by love, and with great personal self-denial and cost. See, the problem is that we like to think of sacrifice in the term of the amount that is given. But that's not what God looks at. God looks at sacrifice as the amount that's left behind after you gave. Which is why he looks at the widow who laid the mite, which was a, 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 a coin, into the offering. And Jesus calls his disciples together, and do you see this? Do you see what she just gave? She gave more than all the others, and the reason is, is that she gave everything. She gave, there's nothing left. She has no reserves. There's nothing held back. She gave everything to God. Sacrifice isn't measured by the amount that you give. It's measured by the amount that's left after you give. See, I think sometimes we, we miss out on really understanding our behavior. Okay? We, we don't understand, and because we don't understand, we don't really work with our behavior. So let me just walk you through, just even if you're a leader, you own a business, doesn't matter where you are, this is a way to understand our behavior, even in the context of managing a business, okay? The first thing that we need to understand is why, why we do something, and why, the, why is the vision, Okay, this is why when your kids, anybody's kids ever done something so stupid that you just ask the question, why? Mine, mine have, and do frequently. And if you go in, and this is why it's so important to parent their hearts and not their behavior, you go in and you ask them, why? Why did you do that? And they look at you and they go, I don't know. I don't know why I colored the walls. I don't know why with permanent marker that won't come off. I don't know why I did it. But asking the question why helps us to point them later on to the fact that our behavior should always connect to the why for our life. It should always connect to the vision that God's given us. So why is the vision, how is the methods that we use to accomplish the vision? It's our personal culture. It's the way that we live. It's the how we navigate situations. You may say, I want to be the vision is I want to be a loving person, but the question is, how will you become a loving person? How? What are the methods associated with that? And then after that, so we have the why, we have the how, and then we have the what. And the what is the work. So we have vision, we have methods, and then we have work. And what most of us pay attention to is just the behavior, and the behavior is the what. And I'm just, if you're a parent in here, if you're a leader in here, and all you focus on is what people do, you miss it. Because people are not motivated by what they do, they're motivated by their beliefs, which become their behaviors. 
So it starts with the why, becomes the how, and then becomes the what. See, we understand the why of Jesus. We get that. Jesus came to save the world. But have you ever thought about this? How did Jesus come? How? Some of you might say, hey, you know what? Jesus came preaching. He came teaching. He came as a prophet. And all of that is true. But the Bible says something different about how Jesus came. Pay attention to this. Luke chapter 7. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. Some of y'all are excited right now because you're like, I have never felt so in common with Jesus than this moment right here. <laughs> Eating and drinking, I get that. That's me, yes. Right? And so much so apparently, look at how this verse continues. In Matthew, in Matthew's version, Matthew 11, verse 19, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, here's a glutton and a drunkard. Apparently, he ate and drank so much that the religious critics of his day said, dude, he is just overdoing it. He is overdoing this thing. And the reason was that Jesus understood the importance of the table. He understood the importance of the table. Because in Jesus' day, the, the, the act of dining or sitting at the table with someone was a very important moment. In your notes today, the first thing that I would want you to notice about that is the table represented a place of acceptance. A place of acceptance. That when you sat down to dine with someone, it wasn't just simply having a meal. It was saying, I see you and I validate you as a person. And Jesus ate with all kinds of people, ate with religious leaders, ate with his friends, ate with people who are far away from God. And it was interesting the way that culturally the table was understood because meals in that day were, were relational and seen as spiritually intimate. They're highly related. It wasn't just the act of eating, which is why it's so weird to go to a restaurant today and you look around and families are four people sitting at the table all on their phones, on their phones. We, every, every time we, we travel, our staff just traveled to Atlanta for a conference. We stop at a restaurant in Atlanta called The Vortex. I love it. Okay, so they have amazing hamburgers, and it's named after our church. How about that? All right, uh, but they have literally on their menu, they say, if you have a cell phone in your hand, we consider it rude, and we will not stop to serve you. I love that. See, in Jesus' day, meals were relational, and they were considered to be spiritually intimate, which is why you can understand the beginning context and some of the things that are said in Scripture about dining and eating with those who are far away from God because they actually viewed that relational time as I'm pouring into you, you're pouring into me. We're, we're on the same playing field. But Jesus didn't view it that way. Oh, no, he ate with the religious leaders, he ate with his friends, and he ate with people who were very far away from God. He did. Jesus, number three, invited people to the table. All kinds of people. People from every walk of life, from every social status. And he dined with them. And this reality over the past year as I've studied it has helped to shape and hone in our vision as a church because I, I want to be like Jesus, and I want to pastor a church that's like Jesus. And so we've decided that, number one, we want to set the table for other people. 
There's always work involved in a meal, and we're willing to do the work so that we can set the table for other people to experience Jesus. Next week at midnight, there will be a whole crew of people who come in here and set up this place so that we can come in early on Sunday morning and have three services. We're willing to do the work to set the table. Number two, we want to make room and leave an empty seat at the table. This is why as our church has grown, and there have been some Sundays when we have well eclipsed our capacity, we've begin to kind of make it known that, that we're, we're looking to expand, that we want to be one church, but not just one church in one location, one church in many locations, one house with many rooms. And the reason is, is that we want to make room at the table. We want to make room at the table. We want to be able to leave an empty seat at the table. This is important because number four, Number three down there is, is, is we, we want to invite people to the table. That's why Easter is such an important time for us as a church, because it is such a, an easy moment to invite people that are far away from God to come hear a message that could literally transform the rest of their lives. It's important. It's important. And Jesus understood the importance of the table. So when we go to this moment, as the, the, the story of Jesus is coming to a close, it's, it's very important to understand how important this moment was for him. Luke chapter 22. This is the Passover meal that Jesus celebrates with his friends as things are getting ready to end. Look at this. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. Now here's the thing. I love this verse because it shows me the posture of Jesus' heart. There's something very different. He knows the hour has come. He's about to be betrayed. But instead of pacing back and forth in worry, instead of being overrun with anxiety, he is reclining at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, prophetically speaking about what's to happen to him. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it, the meal that we're about to eat, finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. This meal that we're about to have is a prophetic pointer to something that is coming in the future. So after taking the cup, he gave thanks. He gave thanks. And he said, take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, you will not eat or I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Notice that every time he gives thanks, he gives thanks. In this moment that, that could be filled with such pain and such anxiety and such stress, Jesus is finding a reason to give thanks. And he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this is the cup of my new covenant, a covenant in my blood, which is poured out. For you, I want to point out a few observations about this that maybe we've missed before, but I want you to see them today. Number one, one of Jesus' last moments was a meal with his friends. One of his last moments. I'm going to tell you right now, 
if I if you knew you had 24 hours left to live and you were given the ability to make a bucket list of anything that you could do, there are many of us that would fill that bucket list with experiences that we've never had. But that's not what Jesus wanted. As his hour came, he wanted to be in intimacy with his friends, and it looked a lot like a meal. They were sitting down to have a meal together. He was accepting them, receiving them, being intimate with them. One of his last moments was a meal. Number two, that even with pain in front of him, Jesus found reasons to be thankful. Even with pain looming large right in front of him, he found reason. Now, here's the thing about this. Some of us, we find it really easy to be thankful when everything's going good, right? You got that promotion, praise God, right? Your kids actually, like, behave for one afternoon. Praise the Lord, my kids are awesome, right? My, your husband picks up after you, doesn't throw his clothes down on the floor, maybe even does the dishes. I had the best husband in the world, right? But all of a sudden, when things get difficult, you find it hard to be thankful for what you have. I love this verse out of Hebrews, Hebrews 12, verse, look at this with me. And let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. That means you have a race, I have a race. God designed a race for each one of us. Your race doesn't look like mine, mine doesn't look like yours, and yours doesn't look like anybody else's. Let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. When Jesus looked ahead to the cross, instead of pain, he saw joy. Do you know why? He saw a purpose in the pain. And that purpose was enough to celebrate, that purpose was enough to be thankful for, and that purpose was enough that even though pain loomed large, it was enough to choose to have joy. The third thing I want you to see is that Jesus broke bread, and he pointed us to a broken body. The scriptures say that he broke bread and said, this is my body that is broken for you. Prophetically pointing to what was going to happen just a few hours later. He broke bread and in that meal symbolically pointed to a broken body. Now I want to remind you of something, that we were created to be like Jesus. This is something that we do not, as Christians in our day and age, take very seriously. But early Christians did. The, the church, as it emerged in the first century, took the life of Jesus very seriously. The example that he had left, very seriously. The teachings that he had leveraged, very seriously. Their lives were modeled after him. They lived in a way that reflected and looked like Jesus. And in Acts chapter 2, we see a description of the very early emerging church, beginning in verse 42. Look at this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, 
to the breaking of bread and to pray. And there's a lot to be said, but let me just linger on that for a second, okay? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, now in, in their day and age, they had access to the scriptures, okay? They, they, they had the ability that there's going to come a time because of language barriers that people would not have access, but in their day, they did, okay? And so they had access to the scriptures, but the, the, the scriptures do not record that they were devoted to studying scriptures, that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Because during their day and age, the apostles were interpreting the scripture to actually apply it to their lives in a different way than it had ever been interpreted before. I want you to understand this about you and about me. Everybody needs a pastor. Everybody needs a pastor. Everybody does. Not, not just, this is not a world where we were designed to do this on our own. When I hit a difficult moment, I call my pastor. And I say, hey, I don't know what to do with this, but I need your help. Can you walk me through it? Everybody needs a pastor. Everybody needs somebody that's speaking into their lives, leading them. You are not created to do life alone, especially your spiritual life. But do you notice what else it said? That they continued to break bread together. That what Jesus began at the Passover, there months, years later, they're continuing in that. So this continues. Everyone was filled with awe, the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And all the believers, all the believers, all the believers were together and had everything, had everything, had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to one another who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They continued to meet together. They continued to meet together. They didn't give up meeting together because it was inconvenience, because the air conditioning went out, because daylight savings time happened. They continued to meet together. They broke bread in their homes. And ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I, I want, how, how many of y'all look at that and go, that looks nothing like the church today? It just doesn't. As a matter of fact, let, let's rewrite it to reflect the way the church looks today. I, I just want you to know this is, is going to be one of those moments It's just going to be a little ouch here, Okay. Ouch for me, ouch for you too, okay? Look at this. The Christians were devoted to themselves and occasionally got to church when they had time. No one was filled with awe because there were no signs and wonders performed by the believers. Very few of the believers were together and they had almost nothing in common because they had no real time with each other. If they sold something, they used the money to buy something better for themselves. They ate on the run kept to themselves, and were too rushed to enjoy one another and give praise to God. They claimed they loved God, but they didn't really love each other. And they felt very empty and alone. As a result, most people disliked them, and very few people were ever saved. That's, if we're honest, where we are today. But I want to remind you, 
that love looks a lot like sacrifice. If you think of that passage of Scripture where the early church is emerging, right? They, they, they sold property so that they could fund people who were struggling financially. They, they sacrificed. That was at great cost to them personally. It was uncomfortable, right? They were, were not the kind of people to hold back on their treasure. They ate together. In their homes, they opened up their homes to one another, brought each other in, had a meal. Some of y'all, it's time to for that person that the relationship's grown cold and they seem distant and they were a friend of yours. It's time to invite them over to have a meal together. They had a meal. And because of that proximity, they had things in common. See, they sought unity to be in one accord. Not to have disagreements among each other. They continued to meet. Even when it was uncomfortable. Even when it was inconvenient. They continued to meet together. See, number four in your notes, this is important. If we're going to be like Jesus, we must let our lives look like his. Because the early church saw something miraculous happen in their midst. People were constantly being saved. Constantly, even in the midst of mass oppression and execution, there were people who were coming and saying, there must be something real about these people. Because they are so different. They're so unique. I want to be a part of that. So we need to choose sacrifice, to give up our rights. That's the way Jesus lived. He was the prince of heaven, laying aside his rights to come to earth so that you and I could be made right with God. We need to choose unity. We need to choose to unite with other Christians and with our fellow brothers and sisters here at church under the same cause, the same principles. We need to not elevate our differences, but to focus on what makes us alike. And we need to choose to do life together because God made you to live in life together. See, sometimes I think we need to remember the why of Jesus, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many. That's why he came, to give up his life as a ransom, as the payment in full to get you and me out of slavery and prison. That's why. How did he come? He came eating and drinking. But what did the life of Jesus look like? If you think about it, most of Jesus' life was marked with anonymity. He was born in a small town called Bethlehem. His parents had to escape. When they did come home, they came home to another small town called Nazareth, which we understand that had a very poor reputation. Most of his life was spent making things out of wood, things that were probably populating that small town in Nazareth. Chairs, tables. And then he entered into the ministry at a very older age, somewhere around 30 years old. 
when he entered in, the religious leaders of his day did not receive him. They rejected him. His family rejected him. His hometown rejected him. And even in the end, his followers rejected him. I mean, I think a life that looks like Jesus, that's being lived that boldly, experiences many different forms of rejection. If you feel that today, I want you to know you're not alone. Then he willfully gave up his rights to lay down his life. As he had that meal with his followers, he knew that in just a few moments he was going to be arrested. He was housed in prison overnight where he received several beatings. In the morning, he would be convicted in a religious court under the charges that he claimed to be God. He would be taken to a Roman governor, Pilate, because they didn't want to execute him by stoning. They wanted him to be executed under Roman law. So they come saying he claims that he's king. That stands in opposition to Caesar. He is up for the death penalty. Pilate does everything he can to get out of it. One of the things is that he, or, he orders that Jesus be scourged. The, the back of Jesus is beaten by the cat of nine tails and to the point that it is a bloody mess. Thinking that if he could just do that, most, most men didn't survive a scourging, but there Jesus was. Beaten and bloody, Pilate eventually at the urging of the crowd, orders his execution. He's forced to carry his own cross through downtown Jerusalem. And on top of a hill outside of town, there were nails driven through his hands and into his feet. His bones were broken before he was raised up on the cross. The pain was so intense. It was so intense that most people would pass out immediately. But we know that Jesus stayed conscious because he had conversations from the cross. He cried out from the cross. And for six hours, he hung there. As his lungs filled with blood, and every time he went to breathe, the muscle contractions required for him to breathe would cause him to have to push down on those nails until the point that he drowned in his own blood. It is still considered to this day the most heinous way that we have ever crafted to execute a human being. And he did that for you and for me. That broken bread pointed to a broken body. And that body was broken so that you and I could be made right with God. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.